Zeitgeist Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. This is Cansu Çamlıbek, coming to you from Istanbul. And we have a special guest today with us, Mehveş Evin, a very dear friend and also a seasoned journalist with 25 years of experience in journalism and in rights advocacy, who also writes a column at Duvar English here. She's here with us today, as well as Lightguys Turkey's co-host Can Selçuk'i. When I say here with us, of course, we are all in our homes and connecting towards a phone line. They are both on the line right now. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey, Mehvesh. Hello, Cansu. Hello, Can. And Can, hi, of course. Hi, Cansu. Good to hear you and welcome, Mehvesh. So, Mehvesh, it's your first time at Zeitgeist Turkey with us. My pleasure. It's our pleasure too. I know you have been self-isolating yourself at home for a long time and you have been working from home. How has it been feeling? I've been working at home since the last four or five years. But in terms of the TV show, uh, I used to go, of course, to the studio once a week. But even that, we are doing it uh, on Skype, the TV shows as well. So I cannot complain. I'm healthy. My relatives, my close ones are healthy. So uh, we are keeping on. We would like to discuss this parole law, uh, which uh, was recently passed at the Turkish parliament. And yes. apparently has been very counterproductive in many ways. But also, the way the law was passed and prepared was problematic in the first place. The government bloc, we are talking about the ruling Justice and Development Party and Nationalist Movement Party, they blocked any efforts of trying to include what we might call the political prisoners in this package. And you you yes. followed this uh, process um, uh, very closely. So what happened as, as there? As much as I could, Jansu, yes, because it's even for experts of law, this parole law is very complicated to understand. I talked to a few lawyers and professors and they were also writing and talking about it. First of all, maybe you should state that this parole law, they were working on it. I mean, the AKP and the MHP, as you have said, they were working on it for months. But the new thing was the coronavirus pandemic. This became a necessity for the overcrowding of the prisons to, to release 10,000 of prisoners. But the way they did this law, as you have said, created outrage. But outrage by whom? Of course, by opponents. Because in the parliament, this law, they, they were talking about it, how to do it, how to present this for weeks during the outbreak and then it's been almost two weeks they passed it and you know that the oppositional parties in total all of them also with the independent MPs just a few the AKP and MHP are outnumbering them so the law has passed and I have to say that it was favoring MHP's demand that that was talked about and written about. The second thing is this parole law is very complicated also to understand in law terms. It's not clear which convict will get out. Political prisoners, uh, also journalists, all those people charged with terror-related crimes will not be released. This also includes people with chronic diseases and with higher risk groups uh, for COVID-19. For example, Ahmed Altan, 
who is a writer who was in jail, still in jail. He is 72 years old. Then there is Salatin Demirtas, the ex-HTP co-chair, and also he was a presidential candidate. Uh, he is in jail. He has chronic diseases. And there are so many others. So this parole law has really not much to do with prevention against COVID-19. I would like to come back to what you said about how this law, this bill, was actually penned according to mm-hmm. the demands from the MHP. And yeah. uh, for our audience, I would like to remind what uh, the MHP is in the political context. And uh, they had been in alliance with President Erdogan's AKP for almost four years now. And if yeah. it wasn't for the MHP, President Erdogan himself wouldn't have won the presidential election and also the general elections. And the alliance between AKP and MHP was out there during last year's uh, local elections. So the MHP is an important component. Very important. Uh, yes, we might well say. And John has also been giving us important data in terms of how the MHP and AKP alliance has been so crucial for Mr. Erdogan to keep himself and his party in power. This background is very important to understand why apparently AKP has given concessions to the MHB in writing this bill that this law was actually used uh, as a cover to free some of the MHB-friendly criminals who have been in jail for various crimes. And uh, yeah, one of them... Especially organized crimes, yeah. Why do you think... President Erdogan, at this point, of course, the the preparations have been going on for a while, but why do you think he saw the COVID outbreak as a perfect opportunity uh, to to come up with these concessions to his alliance partner, Mr. Bahçeli, the head of MHB? He could just put this on the table, but it might not be that easy to pass the law. Why? Because of the COVID-19 situation itself, whether lockdown measures, okay, you are doing your campaigns on social media, but that's it. So it might have an effect as well. But it was a golden opportunity in terms of passing this law because nobody really cared much. Everybody was so much into uh, what's been going on with the pandemic. I think that had played a role. It was just an opportunity for AKP as they used this opportunity for other policies. For example, eight more HDP municipalities have been appointed so-called trustees. There's not so much opposition at the moment. And every day there's actually less and less opposition because of the measures by the government, the cabinet, or the president and his men. I cannot call this a government. So it's been hard for people to really make a strong voice against it. Many uh, murders actually walking out of prisons uh, in the last two weeks. For Duar English, you wrote actually two articles following the passage of the bill at the parliament. There have been very heartbreaking cases. I mean, the cases that we know of. There might be dozens of cases happening in terms of domestic violence across Turkey as we speak but there are reported cases and there are uh, cases that ended with the most dramatic uh, incidents and one of them was this person uh, Müslüm Aslan was freed from prison and he was actually in prison for stabbing his wife before and he was released after the power law and he went home to see his children and apparently his children were staying at their grandparents house with their mother and he took the children home tortured his children and yes, the, girl, the little girl not the boys the, yes, he made the, the little punch. little girl he he beat her to death and in front of the sons this this is the 
This is outrageous, and this just happened following his release uh, due to the parole law. We know that especially these kinds of abusive spouses, especially they have feelings of revenge, and when they get out, they usually go back home or to their partner. They want to take revenge because they think that the woman is responsible for what happened to them because she made it a case. She filed a divorce. She uh, took some precautions. There are so many cases like that. Since the government cannot really protect these women who are under constant threat of their husbands. But some of them really succeeded, like this guy, Mr. Massa. He was put in jail, but now he got out. A very striking point about this parole law is women don't know if their abusive husbands are coming back or when they are coming back because they are not notified by the government. Those who get out, which there are convicts of violent crimes as well, they are put into buses by the ministry itself. They are sent home to their addresses. Most of these addresses are the addresses which they shared with the wife or ex-wife. So all of a sudden, the woman, the kids, see the guy on the doorstep. So it's really horrific. This is one very serious aspect of it. The second one is, during the outbreak, during the social distancing measures, people have to stay at home and people don't have much personal space, John still, especially those who are not well off, who are living in cramped houses with many kids, also grandfathers, grandparents, and etc. So because of the COVID-19 measures, the house itself has become hell for many women during this period. For example, in March, 29 women were murdered and there were nine suspicious deaths. I say suspicious because sometimes these deaths are reported as suicide or unknown cause. That this happens in a lot of cases because these men know how to escape from the law. Women rights groups, they are really very scared that the numbers will get much higher during the pandemic. Right. So, John, as Mehvesh was suggesting, maybe you can jump in with any kind of data that you have in terms of how the women's issues and the violence against women proceed in Turkey. Sure, John. So, I'd be happy to first let me provide with some data on how women rights issues are perceived in Turkey. And then maybe I might get into a more specific with respect to the parole law and what the perception on the parole law has been in this aftermath. So, I would like to refer to a polling that we did at the end of January 2020. And we tried to uh, understand uh, how people perceive women rights issues in Turkey. We asked the question, do you agree with the following statements? And one of the statements is that women rights issues are exaggerated. I think that women rights issues are being exaggerated. And exaggerated here is used in the negative meaning. And 45% actually said that they agree with the statements. This is a huge number. 40% said that they don't agree with the statements. So 45% actually say, what's the fuss about? Of course, after the remarks that Mehvesh made, it's obvious what the fuss is all about, but half of the population does not seem to agree. On the other hand, 33-34% of population thinks that Turkey is in a good position in terms of women's rights. And 46% disagrees with the statement that Turkey is in a good position vis-à-vis women's rights. It wasn't very clear there. So 46% of the respondents said that Turkey is not in a good place in terms of women's rights. 
Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. But on the other hand, 34% think that Turkey is in a good position uh, vis-a-vis women's rights. John, before we continue with the numbers and with your analysis, do you have a breakdown of people who think the the issue is actually exaggerated? But I'm talking about uh, the gender breakdown. I was actually about to come to that. Right. The results are surprising there. Actually, up to 45% who agree that women rights are exaggerated, the breakdown between men and women are almost 50-50. So there is equal amount of uh, women who think that women rights issues are being exaggerated. So this actually tells us that there is not only a lot of ground to cover in stating a lot of the women rights that are part of basic human rights, But also there's a lot of ground to cover uh, in changing women's perception vis-a-vis their position in the society as well. The same goes in for the statement where we asked participants, do you agree with the following statement? And the statement was, women should also work, but not be as active as men. And 52% of the population agreed to the statement. And when you look at the breakdown of this answer, It's, again, almost 50-50, 50% men and 50% women. So already the perception towards women rights is not in a good place, but it's also in a, not in a good place among the female population. It seems to me, uh, judging by the numbers that uh, you have given, that the equality between men and women is still not perceived properly. Almost half of the women in Turkey agree with the statements, as you said, that they might actually be perceived differently than men. It's very striking. Uh, And there have been, as Menevesh mentioned, many women's rights advocacy groups. And I find them quite vocal and hardworking and result-oriented, by the way. I mean, the civil society in Turkey is also uh, in chains. Uh, They are subject to... Uh, many restrictions because of the current laws and because how the current laws are used against them under the title of fight against terror. But still, among the civil society groups in Turkey, I always find the women rights groups quite successful and quite organized. In a framework where we have a better organized advocacy group working on the subject for so many years, more than two decades, and still the result is we have half of the women population in Turkey being almost okay with how they are treated in this society. How, how do you, like, what, what is your take on this, Mehmet? Yes, I agree with what you have said. Really, the women's rights movement, it's been also the most effective, I might say, in past years. And it's also cross-sectional in that you have, like, seculars, you have pious women who define themselves as feminists, Kurds, Turks, whatever. So... Uh, also from different socio-economical backgrounds. This movement was and is still one of the most effective, still most vocal. Think of 8th of March, Women's March. It's very outspoken and it, it's very effective. But at the same time, when you say women's rights, people still are confused about it, and women as well. We know very famous figures, women figures, who are against women's rights. They are vocal about it. For part of the female population, if you ask them to evaluate President Erdogan on what he has done for their rights and freedoms, a part of the female population in Turkey will say that he's a liberator, right? Because he actually was the reason why many women could get out of their houses, actually take part in uh, political political work and propaganda, 
and then later on during his prime ministry people uh, of Baal were allowed to enter universities many of the women who didn't have uh, both social rights and legal rights to be out there in the public scene actually had a chance to do this practice many of their rights so from that perspective for example their situation has improved greatly but on the other hand if you ask another part of the female population in turkey then they might say that President Erdogan is the worst thing to happen to women rights in Turkey because he's told women to have three kids, has been backlashing on a number of social issues. There's a certain element of relativity uh, in this issue, which I think is reflected in the numbers. So it's not an absolute figure. Violence doesn't actually have any ideology. Violence is an ideology. So it doesn't matter if you are from the secular camp or if you are pious. Women are being subject to violence in secular homes too. Remember the famous Turkish singer Sula, for instance. She is one of the figures that probably many secular youngsters look up to. She's beautiful, she's young, she's very popular, she earns a lot of money, she makes the headlines with everything she does, and yet she was actually beaten by her former boyfriend. So the problem here, the dilemma that we are facing is that Whatever happened with the workforce and how the pious women in Turkey is now being represented everywhere and now they can freely go to the universities, that's all okay. But when we talk about violence and how women are treated, and this is becoming a common practice for many households, and yet this is not well understood, then there we have a problem. So, John... Do we have any figures about how uh, the society actually perceived uh, this recent parallel? Yes, Jansu, I do, and I'd like to share them with you because I, I find them quite uh, interesting. But one thing to note is we did this polling right after parallel was passed, so we had not yet seen some of the negative outcomes materializing, such as the murder of the little girl that you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the podcast. Overall, 33% of the population think that this is not just, this law is not just. It's not fair. What's more important, I think, is that 32% actually think that this doesn't really have much to do with the COVID threat, but there's something else behind this parallel law, which we have been talking about already uh, since last week, because this has actually been on the agenda since spring 2018. And uh, Mr. Bacheli had brought it up again after the elections in June uh, 2018, but then it was tabled up until a couple of weeks ago. So... Uh, 42% of the population thinks that it will actually cause the crime rate to go up, which I find to be a significant number and which I find will increase as time passes by and we will start, unfortunately, start hearing more about these released convicts committing crimes following their release. But what's more interesting is, and what's difficult for me to understand politically, is among AK Party supporters, 22% think that this is an unfair law. 20% of the MHP voters actually think that this law is unfair. I mean, this number goes obviously higher among opposition party voters. But the reason why I'm finding this interesting is that right now, 
the ruling People's Alliance is trying very hard to consolidate its base as much as they can to recover the losses since June 2018. As you know, for a while now, they've been faring below the 50% threshold. So to me, it seems politically irrational to create such cleavages among their own bases. Because, you know, 22% among our party voters and 20% among MHP voters on such a critical issue is a significant cleavage that might actually become more visible as the release news over a crime committed by released convicts become more commonplace. Because unfortunately, they will become more commonplace because all the statistics tell us that such uncontrolled, unchecked paroles uh, only contribute with released convicts being detained again shortly after their release. So from a political perspective, I find this very risky and very irrational for AK Party and MHB. It's a very risky undertaking, which tells me then that there might be other games that are not visible uh, to us directly that they might be expecting from this move. Obviously, we will have to wait and see what those are. But from a purely electoral mathematics, it just doesn't make sense. John, do you have a poll showing support during the COVID-19 outbreak, how the government is handling all this? Actually, we do, Mehvesh. The support has been divided, unfortunately, on political lines. So that data doesn't really tell us much. But I can tell you that... uh, Diverging from the government's performance, a Minister of Health is found more successful in comparison. I can tell you that, but mostly the divisions are based on, they fall on political divisions. Not much uh, data to tell us there. I think the data will be more telling once the health side of the crisis is over and we are left to deal with the hard, cold economic fallout of this crisis. I think the numbers will be more telling once we come to that stage, which I assume will be June or July. But as things stand right now, there isn't a clear picture yet. I ask this because it relates to Johnson's question. She said that why the AKP and MHP put this law right on this time on the table why they passed it now. So I also think that they knew, actually, both parties knew, President Erdogan himself knew, that among his voters, people would not make a huge fuss about it, but they would be opposed to this parole law. So it must be also an opportunity during this pandemic, maybe to pass this law, a created much less opposition than they were uh, actually waiting for. You have a valid argument there. And the government did have a lot of pushback back in 2018 when this was first discussed. So while the new cycle is dominated by uh, COVID-19, it's a good time to actually pass such a law. But the fact that people are preoccupied with other things, meaning their economy and their health situation, doesn't mean that they react negatively to this. It just means that the negative reaction is not really outspoken. But we can see in the numbers that, as I just said, a good portion of both our party supporters and MHP supporters find this law unfair, unjust. So Mehvesh and Jana, coming back to whether this law actually served its purpose of helping the government to get the coronavirus outbreak under control in prisons. Apparently there is a statement from uh, the Justice Minister, Abdulhamid Gül. He revealed the fact that in four different prisons across the country, 120 prisoners tested positive for the virus. He said that none of these uh, 120 are actually 
in ICU. They are not in critical conditions. But apparently, 120 prisoners in prisons that were not named by the justice minister carry the virus. Despite the law, despite the parallel law, despite the releasing of uh, more than 90,000 people from prisons, there are still people. How they are actually, they have been subject to virus is another question because uh, as, uh, as far as we know, visitors are forbidden. So they are actually communicating via telephones with their relatives and loved ones. So that's another question for another debate. But this also tells us, coming back to what Mehvesh said earlier about the prisoners, political prisoners and journalists who are in vulnerable positions because of their age and because of the chronic diseases that they have. So the coronavirus is actually in Turkish prisons. We don't know which prisons the justice minister is talking about right now. But we know that the vulnerable people inside those prisons are open to being infected with the virus. So this parallel law actually probably solved part of the problem, but not fixed the problem. Also, maybe on another note, Jansu, it's important to remind this as well. Uh, there are around 400 severely ill prisoners in jail. It was also before COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, these people were talked about in the parliament by the oppositional MPs. There were calls for them to be set free, but they are not. Some of them are almost dying. And HDP MP Meral Danish told me that she applied for them to have the right to die in their bed in their own home. But even that was totally ignored. So when it comes to COVID-19 and the parole law and whom it is surfing, maybe we, we should keep that. In mind. This discussion has many sides to it. The real impact of the law, uh, we will understand it better in the in the coming days. I think this actually brings us to a end of our episode. Mehvesh, many thanks for joining. If you'd like to add any closing remarks. I mean, there are so many things to say. It's like, um, I just want to say that there are so many prisoners jailed who really are at high risk and whom maybe we don't know about, uh, but these people need to be talked about more and more, and maybe there will be another chance for maybe a new parole law. I don't know. We'll see uh, how that goes, Mehvesh. And uh, thanks uh, for being with us. Thank you very much. And uh, stay healthy. John, see you next week.